electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Yep, another big intraday reversal, this time to the downside. Stocks are pulling back as we wrap up this wild week on Wall Street. We are sitting at session lows right now. This is the make or break hour for your money. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Take a look at where we stand right now. Down 350 or so on the Dow. Started the day higher, as you can see. It's been dropping ever since. The S&P 500 is now down 2%, which means we are weaker overall for the week. Just giving you the, the week to date right now, we're down 1.17%. NASDAQ's down 2.5% right now, also weaker overall for the week. The small caps down 2.25% as well. Check out the bank stocks. Some mixed action today after reports from J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and Wells Fargo. Morgan Stanley is the loser today, down 5%. Wells Fargo, one of the winners, up 3%. We're going to talk to the CFO of that bank in a first on CNBC interview in just a moment from now. Also ahead this hour, the man at the center of the big deal news. Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen joins us exclusively to talk about his $24.6 billion agreement to buy rival Albertsons. Let's break down today's reversal here, though, in the markets with our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, and his dashboard. Not as, not as, we're not giving back all the gains from no. yesterday, but still, it's an ugly turn. It's a, it's a high compression, high emotion market, I would argue. And, and when you have these moves that really do shuttle from low to high in a hurry, like we saw yesterday, it shows you it's kind of a, of a quick money, easy come, uh, and then, you know, kind of quick to, to disgorge them. I'm not saying it's all mechanical and technical, but that was a certain element of it. Here's where it takes us. Uh, yesterday's low in the S&P 500 was just under 3,500. So we're about 100 S&P points above where we were. And we were a total of more than 200 S&P points from yesterday morning's low to this morning's high. And now we've given back, you know, let's call it uh, a third of what was gained. So it's not comfortable, but right now you're still kind of hovering right in the vicinity of those September 30 lows, really not that far either from the June uh, 16th lows. So essentially over the past four months, you haven't made any net progress, but if you bought at the lows, you also are not quite yet a loser. Now, Treasury yields remain a big part of the story. The equity rally yesterday, in part, was about yields backing off to a degree and not reacting in a very sharp way to the CPI number. Well, here is the real uh, 10-year yield. So this is the yield on 10-year Treasury inflation-protected securities. The nominal yield is over 4%, 4.02. That's pretty much a new high for this cycle. What you see here is it's flattened out on the real yield side. So what, what this means is you get this yield over 10 years plus whatever the CPI is. That's the adjustment that gets made for the return here. Real yields are what does restrict economic activity. It makes uh, you know yielding instruments more uh, profitable for the people who own them and for lenders. But for borrowers, it means there's a bit more of a hurdle rate. That's what acts as restrictive uh, kind of a force on economic activity. That's what the Fed wants. And the stock market valuation is pretty sensitive to this number, Sarah. So is the key now you just have to watch yields? And if yields are higher on the day, then the stock market is lower? It's a big chunk of it, yes. Although I would argue that it's sort of like a give and take process because the stock market can ultimately make its peace with higher yield levels at some point. Keep in mind, June 16th, uh, we did have somewhat lower yields and the S&P's at the same level. 
right? So it seems as if you can have a little bit of a loosening of that relationship over time. I think the, the, the market just needs clarity on where the Fed's headed, the destination level. Right now, it seemed to be just under 5% in terms of short-term yields. And we need to know approximately when we're going to get there. Once you have stability there, bond market volatility can calm down. That, to me, is a prerequisite for any real sustainable uh, advance in the equity market. And we've also been sort of obsessed with what's happening in the U.K. and whether that that market dysfunction could really start to spill over, could make the Fed pause. I think the determination today is no, that it's not going to get in the way of the Fed policy. But I do wonder if if some of the political developments have quieted that situation or because the gilts, their equivalent, still higher yields. I think investors and the market itself doesn't know when it's on its own, when the Bank of England's not in there and they're not in there right now, if it's going to get messier. And what that means is if yields are going to get really disorderly to the upside and you're going to have a lot more losses taken on the fixed income side of portfolios, and that's been a drag on stocks all along. So I don't think anyone's looking at one particular thing and says, "Uh oh, that's going to be the danger point. It's just this general unknown of we don't know exactly how it's going to settle up. It's going to have enough demand for all the supply. We've got every sector lower right now. Energy and consumer discretionary, worst performers. Healthcare is holding up the best, but it's down half a percent. Mike, thank you. We'll see you later for Market Zone. Mike Santoli. Take a look at Wells Fargo. It is popping today after reporting third quarter earnings, which did top analyst estimates. But the company's performance was hurt by operating losses of $2 billion related to litigation, customer remediation, and regulatory matters. Joining us here first on CNBC is Wells Fargo CFO Mike Santamassimo. Mike, welcome back. Nice to see you. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So clear, the market's taking it well, and, and it looks like, aside from some of those, those litigation costs, it was a beat on the top and bottom line. How would you characterize the environment right now that you're operating in? Consumer, credit, yeah. all of it. Yeah, look, it's a challenging environment overall, but I think what you saw is some solid performance when you look through uh, into the underlying uh, you know, fundamentals of the, of, of the business. You know, we had strong net interest income growth driven by the higher rates and loan growth that we've seen. We had really good credit performance that's continued, uh, you know, for the, for the last number of quarters across both the consumers and, and our commercial uh, portfolios. We've got really good, strong capital ratios uh, that continue there. And, and we've been continuing to execute on the things that we can control the most, you know, our risk and control infrastructure build out, our efficiency program, and, and the products and, and people we need to continue to, you know, grow across each of the businesses. So, so good, solid performance in a really challenging, you know, macro environment. The, the self-help story, as one analyst told me today, is very much intact here. You mentioned net interest income. Clearly, that's a bright spot as interest rates rise. It was up 36 percent. The margins were a beat as well. How sustainable do you view these kind of gains? Do you think we're at peak net interest income? Well, I think it's hard to tell, right? You know, the, the Fed's on a path to continue to increase rates. At least that's what it, it appears to, to be doing. And the, and the market's pricing in a, a number of incremental rates from here. Um, so that will certainly help. Uh, you know, we'll continue to have to pass some of that along to customers through deposit pricing. And, you know, we'll see how loan growth progresses for the rest of the year. But, but we're in an environment now where we're benefiting from higher rates as we thought we would uh, coming into this, uh, you know, given our positioning uh, that we've done over the last couple of years. You mentioned deposit pricing, and I, and I wanted to hit that, too, because I know that investors are really paying attention to the outflows right now happening in deposits. Your costs were less than some of your competitors that reported today. First, I'm wondering why is that and just how competitive you think that's going to get the pressure to, to raise those prices? 
Well, we certainly have different mixes of, of businesses, so that's probably part of you know some of the differences you see across the, the peer set. You know, but for, for us, you know, as, as we've said for a while now, as rates continue to rise, you're going to see deposit prices go up. And, and as they rise from here, those prices will go up a bit faster than you've seen uh, the, the, so far. You know, it'll, it'll happen most in our corporate investment bank, where those are the most price-sensitive deposits. We're also seeing that, uh, that, that pressure in our wealth and investment management business in a lesser degree on the, on the core consumer side. But from here, as rates go up, you're going to see pricing definitely go up. And you mentioned loans also growing, and we saw that across banks, although your loan growth was a little bit below consensus and quarter to quarter was flat. Where, why is that, and, and is that the end of loan growth? Well, we thought coming into this quarter that the growth rates were going to moderate uh, quite a bit. You know, what we saw in the first half of the year was, was that really strong growth you know, coming out of the first quarter and into the second quarter. And we knew that just wasn't going to sustain itself across, uh, across the book. But underneath that, you're seeing our credit card portfolio continue to grow. You're seeing uh, the home lending uh, first lien mortgages continue to grow. A little bit offset by our auto portfolio. And then you're seeing some you know, good, stable uh, loan balances across the other businesses. Our commercial bank continues to grow. And it's offset a little bit by what's happening in the, in the uh, corporate investment bank. But overall, we're about where we expected based on what we were seeing uh, earlier in the quarter coming out of the second quarter. And then from here, I think it's going to be you know, dependent upon what happens in the overall economy. And, and I think you know, we're not past, you know, the utilization rates in our commercial businesses aren't past where they were in the, you know, pre-COVID. Um, so I think there's still some opportunity to grow here, but I think a lot of it will be dependent upon what happens in the environment. Are you guys expecting a recession anytime soon? Well, you know, I leave the procrastinate uh, the the uh, projections of like whether we're going to hit a recession or not, like to others. But I think from what we're seeing so far, like you're going to see some slowing growth uh, as as rates rise. But so far, you know, consumers are doing re really well. They're out there spending. We're seeing good, healthy activity across our commercial uh, client base as well. Um, and so we're not seeing the impact of that yet, for sure. But you know, I think for you know, we're cert we're certain that the economy will slow as rates go up. But you know, I'll, I'll leave, uh, you know, timing and depth of uh, a recession maybe to others to project. But, uh, but I, I think we'll certainly see that slowing happen over the coming quarters. And I have to ask you, obviously, about the $2 billion hit. Obviously, you're still dealing with big regulatory and litigation costs. And any sense of what inning we're in here? Well, I think you know these, these, these costs are, are just part of the process and, and that we need to go through to put some of these past issues behind us. And we're working really hard to do that. We, we're making good progress on it. But, but as we've been you know, trying to say now for a number of quarters, we still have a lot of work to do. We're still working through that in a, in a, in a, with as much urgency as we can. Um, and you know, the costs we saw in the quarter are just reflective of the progress we're, we continue to make uh, in, that, in that work effort. Investors seem to agree. Stock up 3%. Mike, thank you for joining me today with some color on those results. Mike Santamassimo. Thanks, Sarah. CFO of Wells Fargo. And Monday, don't miss my first on CNBC interview with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. It's at 2 p.m. Eastern time, ahead of closing bell on Power Lunch. I'll be there for that. Look at Kroger and Albertsons, stock stories of the day. They are both trading in the red today on news of a nearly $25 billion deal to combine the companies. We will talk to the CEO of Kroger about the strategy behind the acquisition and the potential concerns of regulators. It's a CNBC exclusive. Dow's down 350. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Huge deal news today. Kroger officially buying rival grocery company Albertsons in a $24.6 billion deal. Both stocks are pulling back on the news. Joining me now exclusively from Cincinnati, Ohio, Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen. Rodney, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Great to see you again. You too. Look, I, I'm wondering how long this deal has been in the works because Albertsons announced back in February it was pursuing strategic options. How did it come together? Yeah, if you look, it really started getting serious about, uh, I would say, two months ago. And uh, Vivek, the CEO of Albertsons, uh, we've known each other for years and years and years. And it really uh, was a conversation that the two of us had in terms of uh, there should be something here that makes sense, that ends up being good for uh, customers, uh, good for our associates, good for the communities, and really creating a, a new uh, competitive company that really, uh, if you think about competing against the big box uh, super centers and the online players, uh, just improving that. So really, uh, Vivek and uh, Chan, the uh, chair there, and Steve Feinberg, uh, is really you know, thinking about together, how do we create something uh, that really helps uh, the, cons the customer and the communities? Well, the, the stock reaction I wanted to ask you about, Rodney, because your stock is down 8%. Albertson's stock is, is pulling back either lack of confidence that this deal gets done or that it adds value for Kroger. What, what is your reaction to that reaction? Well, if you, if you look, you know, sh short term, uh, I always uh, remember giving Warren Buffett credit one time about short term, it's a, a voting machine, long term, it's a weighing machine. And we feel really strong over time uh, that uh, this is really good and creates value. And if you had a chance to listen to any of our uh, earnings call, you know, this uh, increases our TSR model, our commitment of 8 to 11 percent. It increases it for the next four years. So it's a great value for our shareholders and improves cash flow as well. What about the regulatory piece of this? A lot of concern that this will not pass muster with the antitrust authorities combining such big, both of you have such big presences, huge 
uh, employee workforces. Why do you have confidence that, that you can get this through? Yeah, well, we've been working with our outside counsel uh, from an FTC standpoint for a while. Obviously, we're going to sit down and uh, be very cooperative uh, with the FTC. And it really gets back to the conversation and the comments I made before. We actually believe this will increase competition. If you look at the synergies uh, that the combined companies will create, uh, we will invest uh, half a billion dollars or $500 million in lower prices for customers. And especially in this inflationary environment, that's a huge help. Uh, we also uh, will spend $1.3 billion on customer experience uh, as well, which that also uh, adds to it. And it creates uh, more solid jobs for our associates across the country. And obviously, those are great union jobs. And between the two companies, we'll have over 700,000 associates. So from all the work that we've done and working with our outside counsel, uh, we really think and believe this will increase and improve competition looking forward. But don't you think it's going to be an uphill battle, Rodney, to try to convince this administration who, that's already been skeptical of corporate consolidation at a time where food prices in September rose 13 percent from last year and an administration that has been very friendly to the unions? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we uh, shared that we expect that closing won't be until early 2024. And uh, we believe that uh, there's a great reason uh, for the two to allow the two companies to merge. And it really does, as I said before, allows the companies to be more competitive uh, against, you know, those online players and the big super centers. Uh, so, you know, for us, uh, we look forward to setting down and having the conversation and uh, feel that it's uh, going to be very, very good for uh, everybody. Just want to point out to everyone that session lows for the S&P down 2.3 percent. The Dow's down 400. Not, not another turbulent day here and a big turn in, in terms of sentiment throughout the day. Rodney, you mentioned that as part of this, you're going to be investing in price or lowering prices at Albertsons. But I think the math works out to, by, to about 1 percent. Is that enough? Um, yeah, we think that's a great first start. Uh, as you know, if you look at Kroger, we've been investing in pricing for the last 15 years. Uh, and we've done it, looked at it market by market in terms of uh, what's, uh, where to make the price investments and how. And we think uh, the $500 million is an awesome first start. And if you look over time, our strategy will always be uh, to continue uh, to, through process change, get costs out of the business, and then turn around and give some of that to the customer. And as you know, certainly in this inflationary environment, mm -hmm. it's even more important to let the, try to help support the customer's budget even more so. The other thing that's really important is if you look at the combined company, our brands uh, is a $43 billion uh, area. And, you know, our brands also provides a great opportunity where you don't have to give any compromise in terms of quality, but you're able to uh, stretch the budget as well. And when you look at the two companies, uh, we have an incredible our brands portfolio. The other, the other concern that I've heard today from traders and analysts has to do with the plan to divest some stores in order to appease the regulatory authorities. And just who's going to be the buyer for some of these stores and at what price? You're going to, you're, so you're spinning that off into a separate company. What can you tell those that are questioning what, what type of deal you're going to get on the other side? Well, we feel very comfortable that uh, we'll be able to find uh, buyers that are strong, great operators. 
uh, for the stores. And obviously, we haven't, we didn't have any conversations with anyone before the announcement. Uh, but I know when I'm talking to our investment bankers, they've already had people reaching out. And if you look at the structure of the deal in terms of uh, being able to create Spenco, uh, that's one option as well to make sure that you have a strong, viable competitor uh, that's able to compete and do it successfully in the future. I think there's a clause that in, the, in the deal that if the government does require more than 650 divestitures, then, then you, then Kroger, can walk away from the deal. Why did you choose that number? Uh, it really is, an, you know, if you think about the everything within the agreement is a negotiation in terms of trying to balance the risk and the shareholder return, and it was really the, the number that uh, made sense overall. Now, we don't think and would be surprised to get anything close to that, but you'd always have to have uh, some type of out in the agreement. So what? So you, you've, you've been making the case about price. What would it mean for the consumer? So Walmart still has 22% or so market share as of last year in grocery. Your combination would be, I think, around 13%. But then the next pure play grocer, Ajo Del Hayes, would only be, I don't know, 5% or so. Ballpark numbers. But what, what, would, what would it mean for the consumer? Why is that not anti-competitive? Yeah, I think you have to look at it two ways. One is the way you did, but then uh, market by market. And, uh, you know, if you think about in certain markets, you have an awesome local competitor in HEB, other places, Publix. And every market has its own local competitors. Then you have Aldi and Lidl uh, that's more broad-based across a broader part of the country. And you have Costco as well. So, you know, it's, it's really important, and I know uh, you have to look at it market by market. Uh, and there's, a, as you know, you've followed our industry a long time. There's tons of competition. And over time, the customers are always going to get a better and better deal. What about the investors? You know, interesting track record when it comes to historical comparisons on, on deals. There's Albertson Safeway. That faced a number of issues. Albertson tried to go public a number of times. The Amazon Whole Foods deal wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. They only have 3% market share. Everyone was scared they were going to take over the whole the whole the whole sector so how how can you ensure long term that this this one is right yeah if you look for us and uh you know we year, several years ago we merged with fred meyer and fred meyer has been an awesome uh merger and if you look at some of the things that fred meyer had with the marketplace store and that we've been able to scale it across all of kroger uh if you look at harris teeter would be another example uh and on their fresh areas and on their online business, we were able to scale that across Kroger. And if you look at Roundy's, uh, it would also be fresh. So we have a great track record of merging with companies, and I call them reverse synergies in terms of things that they do awesome and bring it into the whole company. And what we find is when we merge with companies, everybody can learn from each other and how do you get the best of both. And we have a strong track record of being able to do that with several previous mergers and uh, expect to do the same with Albertsons because they have great talent, great leadership, and they do some things amazingly well. And we'll be able to share those ideas and take it even to the next level for the customers and our associates. Well, we know it's not set to close till 2024. So hopefully we'll have a lot of time between now and then to talk about how, how the integration is going. But for now, Rodney, thanks for joining me on the big deal announcement. Thank you. Appreciate it. Rodney McMullen, CEO, Chairman of Kroger. Take a look at the markets, down 2% or so on the S&P 500, down 332. We hit session lows a few moments ago and have come back 
a little bit. We're still down more than a percent on the week for the S&P, uh, with every sector lower right now, led down by energy, healthcare, communication services, interestingly, holding up the best. The U.K. has been at the epicenter of market worries this week, with investors closely watching those fast-moving headlines surrounding Prime Minister Truss and her U-turn on fiscal policy. We're going to talk to the former chair of J.P. Morgan International about what could come next and why it matters for your money. And as we had to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Ten-year yield right on top. Center of the action. Bonds are selling off today. Yields are a little bit higher. Ten-year goes above 4%. Followed by J.P. Morgan, an earnings winner, the S&P 500, Dow, and Tesla, which is down 7%. Got a downgrade. We're going to talk about that later in the market zone. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Breaking news right now on Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. Steve Leisman here with the details on the news line. Steve. Sarah, thanks. They are um, there. President Bostic has uh, acknowledged making uh, trades that uh, have violated the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, conflict of interest and trading rules. Um, the uh, uh, Federal Reserve Board's ethics office have found three specific uh, issues. Uh, the first being uh, that he uh, held treasuries, more than $50,000 of treasuries. He had extensive trading during the blackout period. Um, and uh, he also, uh, sorry, one second here looking at it, he omitted a uh, substantial number of securities transactions from his disclosures. Uh, these are being reviewed by the ethics board. Um, they, uh, he has said that these were inadvertent trades here, that he was unaware that these trades were, were had to be that the manager of his funds had to be uh, uh, aware of and following the Federal Reserve Board's rules. Uh, he also traded, by the way, during a certain blackout period of trades uh, during 2020. So clearly, this reminds us, Steve, of the of the Fed trading scandal that happened. What was it last last year that led to some resignations of regional Fed presidents? Uh, uh, Yes, there were two two Federal Reserve Robert Kaplan, presidents, mm-hmm. Robert Kaplan and Eric Rosengren, both of whom resigned as a result. We don't know what action is going to be taken relative to Raphael Bostic. The uh, board of uh, the Atlanta board put out a, a statement saying they were satisfied with the explanation that these trades were inadvertent. That they were inadvertent. Okay, well, keep us posted uh, on that, I guess, how it unfolds. Obviously, still issues there. Steve Leisman. Take a look at the market. The Dow is falling sharply today. It's still on pace for a positive week after yesterday's surge. Here's the up and down action on Wall Street. It's been one of those stomach-churning weeks. Monday down 93, Tuesday up 36, Wednesday down 28. You get the picture. And then Thursday was that huge swing, quite a reversal. We were down 550 on the back of a CPI report that mixed expectations, then finished up 827 points. Thanks in part to a rebound in the British pound. We're down another 1% right now, 294 points. 
Volatility, as I said, a lot of it can be attributed to what's happening in the U.K. And today, some big news, a major U-turn from Prime Minister Liz Truss announcing plans to now reverse part of the government's controversial tax plan, including abandoning the plan to prevent corporate tax rates from rising. At the same time, also firing her finance minister after just six weeks on the job. Investors have certainly been following every twist and turn of the saga with bond and currency markets, especially seeing huge amounts of volatility. We've got a special guest, our old friend Wilfred Frost, who is now a Sky News anchor and CNBC contributor, joining us. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Wilfred, I've been waiting for this day My- for a long time. <laughs> My, my pleasure. I'm sorry it's not better news to be joining you with. Well, so, so tell us, are these actions going to be enough? Because it doesn't look like the bond market has fully calmed down. No, I mean, look, today we did see the prime minister reverse that corporate tax uh, change. That only saves about £15 billion. Pounds. We did see her appoint uh, a new finance minister, someone who's expected to be more orthodox and less cavalier. But we also have to remember today, Sarah, uh, that that Bank of England two-week-long special operation did expire. That was designed to lower the long end of the yield curve to try and help those UK pension funds exposed to liability-driven uh, investments, LDIs, to lower their leverage. And we hope over the last two weeks that they've done that. But that move in the long end of the yield curve higher, particularly into the close today, is a little bit of a, a worrying sign. But I think the takeaway today is monetary policy and the expiry of that Bank of England scheme has outweighed anything that the government uh, could announce on the fiscal side. So what, ha- but what happens to her? Is there going to be pressure on her to resign still? Or has she, Definitely. I don't know, fixed it with I a think, new you know, chancellor? Today, no, I mean, today she's bought herself more time. The, the question genuinely is, is it days or, or is it months? And I think what's fascinating is it is markets that have pressured a new prime minister after just 38 days to U-turn on her signature policy and to fire her most senior uh, minister, someone who's a close ally of hers. And it could well be markets from here that decide if she does get days uh, or months. Her MPs, who will ultimately decide her fate uh, from here, are dissatisfied and disenchanted, not least because uh, of terrible poll ratings. But if the markets improve. If the markets show confidence in her government in the immediate term, it might buy her uh, a little bit more time from here. Uh, This reset today, it wasn't a considered careful reset in the middle of a government. It was a desperate attempt to to keep the wolves at bay in the short term. Well, clearly she got the message. So you you mentioned that the Bank of England policy has been outweighing the fiscal policy, even though that's what sparked it here in the market reaction. What happens next with the Bank of England. Are they done with this emergency bond buying thing? Well, their current policy, which was two weeks long, has now ended and expired. And we wait to see if it was enough. I mean, the encouraging thing was that the Bank of England governor was very clear it was going to expire today. So pension funds who had exposure to LDIs had no excuse if they didn't deleverage. The worrying thing is yields only really lowered for the first half of that two-week period. So there is a risk that some pension funds, despite being given that window, may not have successfully, successfully deleveraged. We'll wait to see next week. And the question, uh, if they fail to deleverage, will be, will the Bank of England do a new scheme? Uh, or will the government confidence right. uh, be enough to, to prevent yields rising again? We'll see on Monday. Well, Fred, we miss you. And you, I got to say, you didn't make the best trade when it comes to getting salad, getting paid in pounds versus dollars. <laughs> Don't remind me. Not great me. timing for Don't you. Don't remind me. And I miss <laughs> you, too.
Thanks for having me. All right, maybe I'll come visit you and go shopping. Wilfred Frost. For more, let's bring in former J.P. Morgan Chase International Chairman and former Bank of Israel Governor Jacob Frankel, who is at the IMF World Bank meetings in Washington. Jacob, where all the discussion is on central banking and how they should respond to inflation and now to financial stability concerns like the U.K. and whether those things are going to be at odds and this is going to prevent them from moving forward with the inflation fight. What do you think? Well, indeed, uh, the last uh, few days have demonstrated again that financial markets are extremely sensitive to news, extremely judging, now, without any mercy, they are conducting referendum on a daily basis on what is coming to them. And this means, therefore, that policies must be presented to the market in a very clear way, transparent and clear. And I think that what is happening there now, in addition to the fundamentals that we are not going to go into, I think that the communication with the market did not pay enough attention that the market listens and reads through when there is lack of depth in the preparation and in the presentation. In any event, the fact of the matter is that we are part of a more global scene. Central banks all over the world, and I'm mm. now in the United States or the Federal Reserve, for example, are clearly have been behind the curve. But it is not just behind the curve in the sense that uh, inflation came as a surprise but really behind the curve in a much earlier sense. You spoke about financial markets. For a long time, interest rates were kept too low for too long. And, of course, it was a good reason. We need to make sure that the economy recovers, the post-pandemic and all of this kind of thing. But unconventional monetary policy must be mm. temporary, by definition. And I think that what happened here, that by pushing interest rates down excessively, yeah. investors were pushed to chase after, after yield. They have taken excessive risk. Pricing of risk was distorted. Corporation engaged in buybacks instead of investment in plant and, in, and uh, equipment. And there has become, as a result, a disconnect between the financial sector and the real economy. And for a while, people yeah. thought that there is no inflation anymore. But there was inflation. It was not in the CPI. It was in the stock market, as one would have uh, no, the interest zero. Yeah, no, you were warning about that for a long time, that the, that the asset markets were showing the inflation and that the central banks were staying too long at the party and not anticipating it. I think the question now, Jacob, is how the Fed reacts at this point. It's trying to catch up, and there are now calls for, for it to potentially moderate or slow down because of what's happening in the economy and in the markets. What would you say to do? Yes, well, there were two parts of what you remarked. You said how the Fed reacts and what should it do. I think it's a general rule. The Fed should not be a reactive body. It should be an anticipatory, a leading body should drive the car through a front mirror rather than the back view mirror. It should look forward. And therefore, the statements that said we are data dependents, we will not move until we see it in the data, forces to be behind the curve. So fortunately now, everyone realizes that this was a bad strategy and we need to look forward. But the question is what now? 
First, there is a large gap that has been created from where the Fed needs to be to where it is. So it is clear, and that's why the steps were very welcome of raising interest rates with significant steps of 0.7 of 75 basis point each round, and I expect it to continue in the cup in the next uh, Fed announcement. The question is now, however, mm-hmm. uh, what next? Should the Fed yield to the calls of saying, "Be careful, go slowly"? I think that one you of think the not. <laughs> Well, I, I am sure not. And the reason is that one of the important instruments of central banks is credibility. Credibility and clarity. So therefore, by being behind the curve for so long, some credibility was eroded. So one of the purposes of raising interest rates now is first to move to the right direction, to the right place, but also to rebuild credibility. I want to say one more point. We are focusing on the interest rate as if this is the main issue. It's an important one. But during the period of QE, mm-hmm. a lot of assets were accumulated in the balance sheet of the central bank. And now we are going to the phase of QT, namely quantitative tightening instead of mm-hmm. quantitative easing. When you are talking about quantitative tightening, the quantities that we need now, the Fed needs to transmit to the market, the quantities are huge. And therefore, yeah. and really unsettled equilibrium. One needs here, one needs to go slowly, but in a very clear way, and the path yeah. needs to be declared in advance. I would not, at any event, give up today the fight against inflation, because this is, this is the sine qua non for monetary policy. Let's admit, Much of the trouble that we have did not come from monetary policy. We have a war, we have food, we have right. health, we have energy. Mm-hmm. We have all of these things that have nothing right. to do with monetary policy. But unity is still key. Well, Jacob, point received. Th- thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing some of your views and, and what you think Central Bakers should be doing. I know you're doing that all week long at the IMF World Bank meetings. Appreciate it. That's Thank Jacob you. Franco, former governor of the Bank of Israel. Looking at the Dow down about 323 points or so. S&P's down 211. You've still got every sector lower. We're a little bit off the lows of the session, which we hit just moments ago. Nasdaq comp down 2.7%, getting hurt the most on those higher yields, down about 3% overall for the week. Tesla's tumbling. That's not helping, following a big price target cut. Coming up, the headwind one Wall Street firm is warning about here. Next. Up next, we'll break down what today's flat retail sales data says about the state of the consumer and retail stocks. That story plus banks rallying and Tesla tumbles when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, we've got Leslie Picker on bank earnings and Phil Lebeau on Tesla's big move lower. We'll kick it off broad, though, with Mike Santoli. The Dow down 335, only one of the major averages that is higher for the week, Mike. And the 2% decline in the S&P comes, I know bond yields are higher and the dollar stronger, and those, that seems to be the, the story here. But yeah. comes, I was going to say, on a day where bank results are mostly better and those stocks are reacting positively. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's that, not a one-way move, although the S&P 500 has spent 
time every day this week under this 3,600 level, which it had only been below once before. So clearly there's a heaviness here because yields have that pressure on. Oil and energy stocks down today, I think, are one of the, the pieces of the, uh, of the puzzle that's not always been in place this year. So that's uh, certainly a weight as well. It doesn't necessarily undo whatever was achieved yesterday. We can argue about what that was, uh, except to say that it found a lot of automatic buyers with the S&P around 3,500. People were leaning a little bit too negative, uh, and you clearly got a big flurry uh, of, of short covering and people saying enough's enough. Uh, today, you'd like to see follow through to the upside. We're not getting that. Leaves everybody uh, sort of apprehensive about what, what, what there is from here. October starts getting a little better seasonally, but it's hard to just lean on that alone. Let's hit the data point of the day, which was retail sales. It is a consumer economy. Out this morning, flat in September, but if you look under the hood, a more nuanced picture of the consumer. So strip out autos and gas, and retail sales were up 0.3%. Resilient consumer, higher prices, boosting groceries and clothing sales. And department stores were a big winner. Sales there up more than 1% from August. Shares of Major department stores having a pretty good October so far. Macy's, Nordstrom, Kohl's, all outperforming performing the broader market and the rest of the retail space. And we should note the holiday shopping season has started even earlier this year. Amazon, Target, and Walmart all with Black Friday-type sales events this week. But independent checks on Amazon's two-day prime event pointing to weaker spending than its July sales. Some big declines today. Target's down 5%. Bath & Body Works down 5 Amazon's down 5%. Mike, a lot of the growth is really happening in inflation, yes. right, and the higher prices. What, what sort of view does it give on the consumer as it relates to some of these stocks? Yeah, the year-over-year increase in retail sales at the top line is basically the same as the recent uh, annual CPI number. So it is mostly price. Consumers have the wherewithal to cover it. There's a little bit of a bridge uh, from, from credit, no doubt about that. Uh, I don't think there's really a sense out there that there's pent-up appetite for a lot of things. It seems as if that the goods uh, you know, binge is, is well over. What's also interesting is this for the second time this week, uh, Vice Chair of the Fed, Lael Brainerd, pointed to the fact that there were fat profit margins in the retail sector that could be a cushion for how you can essentially kind of slow down the economy, bring inflation down, and not cause a lot of unemployment. That may be good news, ideally, for the economy and for the Fed's goals. Not great news for retailers. So it, it just sort of keeps the pressure on. No question about it. Let's hit the bank stocks, because they are big movers today after earnings from some of the biggest names on Wall Street. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, all beating estimates thanks to higher net interest income, thanks to the Fed. But Morgan Stanley's under pressure after missing on both the top and bottom lines following a 55 percent plunge in investment banking revenue. Leslie Picker joins us. Leslie, investment banking has been a tough space all year. Any green shoots from today's results? Yeah, you could see just from the price reaction there, Morgan Stanley has about 17% of its revenue coming from investment banking relative to about 10% for some of its peers. So as a result, the weakness there led to a, a miss on both the top and bottom line and declines on both the top and line for the quarter. We have a, a nice full screen which shows just how 
poor investment banking has been this quarter. For Morgan Stanley, it was down 49%. You can see there, JP Morgan down 43%, Citi down 64%. Uh, and, you know, I spoke with some executives about this. Uh, Sharon Yashaya, the CFO of Morgan Stanley, I asked her what the pipeline looks like and whether we can start to see some improvement because we've had several quarters that look just like this. And she said, Basically, that their CEOs, the C-suite across corporate America, is waiting for the markets to stabilize before they really consummate deals in a big way. So it could be quite some time. And uh, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan said on the call, uh, he urged analysts to model lower their investment banking revenues next quarter compared to this quarter based on what they see in the pipeline today. So green shoots, uh, not too many on the horizon, at least in the near term, Sarah. Overall, Leslie, as far as what's driving these better results, that I guess the net interest income and the margins, which we talked to Wells Fargo about at the top of the hour, is a big story with the Fed raising rates, although First Republic is having a pretty awful day. It's the worst performer in the S&P, down 16.7% on this idea that net interest margins may be peaking. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, you hear kind of the tale of both sides of that, this idea that um, potentially on the deposit side, they could start to see more significant outflows from deposits, which would require them to, of course, raise the uh, interest that they pay to depositors to hold those in their banks and loan against that. And that, of course, would cut into their margins for loan making. And that's something that would completely shift the dynamic. However, among the bigger banks, those with the scale, those that you showed on the board right there, um, they actually, by and large, raise guidance, beat analyst estimates for NII, and that's been a very clear bright spot for the banks. The question becomes, now that the terminal Fed funds rate appears to be a little bit higher, or a lot of people are expecting it to be higher, um, you know, what does that actually do for margins? Because this is just such an, uh, an unprecedented environment that we're experiencing right now. Leslie Picker. Leslie, thank you very much. Let's hit Tesla because it is among the worst performers in the S&P 500 and dragging on the Nasdaq, part of a nearly 3% drop right now for that index. Wells Fargo slashing its price target on Tesla to 230 from 280, citing headwinds from rising interest rates. Phil Abo joins us now. Phil, what, what do you make of that, of that call? Did they highlight anything new? Well, no, they pretty much said it's the interest rate is behind their call on the price target being slashed. But if you read the notes, Sarah, it's actually pretty bullish about what they're expecting from Tesla over the next couple of years. In fact, they raise their estimates between 23 and 26. So even though they cut the price target, they're raising their estimates and they point out the Inflation Reduction Act is a tailwind, probably best suited for Tesla among all the companies that are trying to take advantage of the rotation towards electric vehicles here in the U.S. Mike, Tesla's down. Arc Innovation Fund, which has Tesla as a major holding, down 5% right now. And the Nasdaq down 3%. So, so clearly the, the rate story has more to play out here on this sector. Right. It's the rates. And, and really, it's just a matter of, you know, where the, the greatest, again, crowding and, and valuation premiums were in this market. Um, Tesla is, is sort of experiencing the recoil from exactly what sprang it higher in that 2020 to 2021 period. I do think the results are pretty solid in, in, in Tesla's terms, but they're not really accelerating. And there was a massive premium in here all along based on hopes and dreams and Musk's genius and all the rest of it. And, you know, that somewhat has been muted. And when you don't have price momentum in the stock, it's tough to keep up the enthusiasm, I think, more broadly for the, you know, for the name. Just looking at some new 52-week lows today, Tesla is one of those. 
uh, trading at lows we haven't seen since June 2021. Match Group, all-time lows, Generac, Seagate, Realty Income. So, so ending this way on a Friday, what, what are the next catalysts? Because we're going into earnings season, and I don't know, from the bank results, Mike, it doesn't feel like the market is t- too focused on it with all the hubbub around interest rates and currencies. Well, the bank stocks themselves are responding to the numbers. We're going to get a greater critical mass of earnings. I don't know that you can really craft a storyline out of whether earnings are good market-wide or they're not good. Uh, but usually what happens is you're going to get pockets of strength. You're going to have, in general, better than forecast. And then you see how it shakes out in a couple of weeks. I think that the welcome uh, break would be if we can just concentrate on things like the flow of earnings as opposed to the macro stresses. Again, we keep talking about it. Yields in the dollar are going to dictate whether you can take advantage of, of those kinds of relief. And treasuries are weaker across the curve. We're seeing the 10-year above 4%, yeah. the two-year above 4.5%. We are in the two-minute mark here of trading to go. What do you see in the internals right now? Pretty negative. You know, yesterday was about an eight or eight and a half to, uh, to, to one up day in volume. Today, it's just about the reverse of that. So it's just sloshing back and forth. Yesterday, a lot of folks said 40 percent of all the volume was in ETFs. So it was very much an index, fast money type move. Take a look at small versus large this week. Small caps continue to do OK on a relative basis. Uh, they've really kind of it led the market lower, and they've kind of outperformed a little bit. That's one of those little glimmers you can look for. The volatility index, not doing much, but it's still above 30, which is still an agitated situation. And the VIX futures are showing that we expect continued uh, unsettled market. So uh, off the highs, but not very much, Sarah. We are, yeah, just about the lows of the day right now. Take a look at the Nasdaq in particular. That is down 3.2%, continuing to sink. All the big cap tech names are weighing right now. Apple, the worst of the group. Tesla's right down there with it. Amazon's also with an almost 5% move lower. So some pretty heavy selling here. It's almost like a delayed reaction to the hotter than expected CPI inflation report yesterday. Off that big rally we got intraday when the... (laughs) when the British government changed its tune on policy and the pound rally. There's the S&P down 2.6%. Every sector is lower here into the close. The worst performer, consumer discretionary. You've got energy and materials there at the bottom of the list as well. Technology, though, getting hit pretty hard. Down more than 3% for the Nasdaq on the week. The S&P 500 down 1.5%. And the Dow is positive on the week, up 1.2%, but still down 360 at the close. Have a good weekend, everyone. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.